Amen. What a privilege it is to come and share uh, the word. Being one of four people that looks different from this congregation. Very different from this congregation. How fitting then that we are talking today about the church going to the ends of the world. Because it's not just us. It's everyone here who is included in that, the ends of the earth. I'm really excited about the book of Acts. And, and um, I've made it known far and wide. Uh, Pastor Nile heard about it. I'm in a small group that's discussing the book of Acts. And I'm excited about it because it is a, a book that really represents the birth of the church. And the birth of the church, as I'll really try and uh, uh, insist today, is really God welcoming the world. The spread of the gospel is a, is, a, is, a, is the spread of God's action, welcoming, inviting us into his kingdom. So Acts is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, building his church, sending witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the, of the earth. So you'll recognize that from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It is, as uh, Pastor Nile titled the whole study, the Missio Day. I tried to look for how to pronounce that, and I found ten different ways of doing it online. So I will pronounce it like a proper African. Missio Day. All right? And what it means, it's, it's actually pretty interesting, because it means the mission of God or the sending of God. And then you think about the sending of God, he, he does, he, what he does is actually sends us. He sends his people. So this is the story of God sending his people out to invite the world into his kingdom. See, after the fall in the Garden of Aden, God immediately started calling man back to himself. And since then, he has always extended his welcome to us. 1,800 years before Christ, he started a different phase of this journey when he invited an Iraqi man called Abraham, a Chaldean called Abraham. And, and he was likely a moon worshipper, very unlikely character, wealthy uh, trader, and, and, and yet God picked him and called him and said, I'm choosing you. He says in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. So you'll be great, you'll be a blessing. And then he says, I'll bless all those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples of the earth, including you and I, will be blessed through this beginning of a work uh, that is considered the covenant promise. And then this work continues through the other patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and ultimately the, the nation of Israel. And the covenant promise becomes about community. It becomes about family, as God declares over and over again in the Old Testament and says, as uh, written that in Jeremiah 24-7, I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord. 
they will be my people and I will be their God. Because they will return to me with all their heart. This passage is super important because if you think about Abraham being called, he was talking to an individual. And our relationship with God is very, very personal. But it is at the same time very communal. And when he invites us, he invites us as his people. And often we tend to think of me and I. God is interested in family, in community. And in the New Testament, he reveals himself anew through Jesus Christ. The ultimate welcome into the kingdom about year wide. Jesus ordained that this welcome be extended to the rest of the world, even as he worked with um, his disciples. When he was responding to Peter in Matthew 16, um, 18 to 19, Peter had just revealed that he was the son of God. Uh, basically, when Jesus said, who am I? Who do people say I am? And, and, and he responds to him, and, 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 and amongst that he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my ecclesia. Ecclesia is the church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I think about the power of that. People of God, whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. This is one of those promises that I don't think we can wrap our minds around. The power that God has given us in the church. So this year we picked up the story in Acts. As Jesus ascended into heaven, inviting disciples to be his direct, direct participants in the mission day. He sent the Holy Spirit, his continuing presence in his world. And we, early on in the series, talked about the disciples receiving these flames of fire. And these ordinary people start, suddenly are acting like they're on steroids. They are preaching with fire and confidence. And in one day, 3,000 people are saved. Now I'm trying to think about, we've been, in our study we discovered there's 120 people that are meeting together. And then 3,000 people are saved and they are baptized. So let's think of ourselves in that situation. And Pastor Niall says, okay, there's 3,000 people to be dipped in the water. Guess who does that? Every one of you starts the job of baptizing. Invite, the invitation goes from the 120 to 3,000 and it needed every single one of those. And through the rest of the book of Acts we've been talking about how they perform miracles in the name of Jesus. The healing of the crippled beggar at the temple gate. We talked about opposition that immediately arose. You know when there's something good that's happening opposition will arise. And we did talk about that. I won't dwell on it. But uh, this week I saw a, an excellent uh, illustration. Um, you know, because this is the basketball season. And you have the, the defense, right? And the defense is usually doing this, right? They're, 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 they're defending. Never do you see the defense on the sidelines defending the people sitting on the bench. Because there's nothing happening there. Opposition comes when God is at work. And so we saw eternal opposition and we saw external opposition. Internal opposition, the hypocrisy, the, the racism that was, that was already arising in the church, which led to the first deacons being appointed. 
chapter 7 and 8, we, we, we talked about persecution. And, and, and in the persecution, these disciples who are super excited, uh, I don't think they really know the impact, the import of what has happened to them, are scattered. They are scattered to Judea, to the ends of the earth. They are scattered and they cannot stop chattering about Jesus. And they go off to Judea and Samaria. And then last week, one of the persecutors, we read about his dramatic, dramatic um, uh, transition, his, his, his salvation, how, how he changed from persecutor to the preacher. God uses people. You know, we know these names. They're familiar to us. Peter, Paul, Stephen, Philip. But I dare say these were all ordinary people. Peter was a fisherman who at one time had given up and gone back to fishing. God uses you and I to invite people into his kingdom. As we examine chapter 10, here is really what I want my thesis for this. Okay, there goes the professor. My, my main point being for this, um, for this time, our time together, and it is this, that the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of welcome. And I also want to propose that welcoming one another into the kingdom, hospitality, is a subversive activity. It is subversive because it breaks the status quo over and over and over again. And God is constantly going against the norm. The spirit of Jesus is the spirit of welcome. So let's read uh, Acts chapter 10. And I will be skipping some portions uh, because I know you have read it and you will keep reading it. At Caesarea, Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him with fear. What is it, Lord? He said, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man called uh, uh, Simon, who is called Peter. Now Peter, in chapter 9, we left him in Joppa. Uh, where he was still praying over people and healing them. He's staying there with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who had spoken to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his descendants, attendants. He, he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to, pr- to pray. So I'm watching this movie. And this is happening, right? And then juxtaposing that, they're taking off and uh, this other drama is happening on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house. He be- Peter becomes hungry and he wanted something to eat. And even though he's a guest, it seems like he holds some authority because he's up there and he orders for some food. And while he's waiting for it to be prepared, he falls into a trance. And he's so heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, 
Peter replied, the zealot, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the man sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. So Peter went down and said to the man, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The man replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his, uh, to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter told them, hold on, I'll just grab my jacket and be on the way with you, right? Now Peter invited the man into the house to be his guest, and that is so significant. This was not even Peter's house. He's not even supposed to associate with Gentiles. And here he is inviting Gentiles, not to his house, but to his friend's house. I'd like to know what the conversation that happened between him and Simon about that. The next day, Peter started out with the man, and uh, some, of the be- some of the believers from Joppa went along with him. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. This is like 30 miles away, so two days' walk. Cornelius was expecting them and he had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour and at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man, shining clothes, stood before me and, and he said, and the story continues, So I sent for you immediately and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And then Peter began to speak. And here's the key piece of this. I now realize that it is true that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message. And he continues to preach, and I'm just going to ask you to go to the next slide if you would. We're witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews. They killed him. And he goes through this brief sermon. It sounds like while he was still preaching, probably just warming up. You know, Peter was into long sermons. He was still warming up. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message and interrupted what Peter was saying. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished at the gift of the Holy Spirit that had been poured out even to the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. 
Let me pray for us. Lord, your word is so powerful. So many gems that are in each and every verse in this chapter and in your word from the beginning to the end. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. For, thank you for extending this welcome to us and in turn calling us and sending us to, the, to extend welcome to others. A welcome into the kingdom of God. And I pray that as we discuss uh, how this looks like, that Father, your spirit would open our hearts to, to things that I might not even say, but would you work in each person's heart to see how what a privilege it is uh, to be welcomed into this family and how we are compelled to also extend welcome to others. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story clearly was a watershed event in the story of the growing church. And by a watershed, I looked up the meaning of watershed, it's the, the, a river is flowing in one direction and then it hits something big. And it, it, it could be a ridge, it could be a mountain, and it has to figure out which other way to go. And it changes course. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a watershed event in which God chose to use two people who are the most unlikely people to be used. As uh, the, the marker uh, that now the Gentiles were welcomed to the kingdom of God. He used Cornelius and Peter. And, Peter, and I call them the rule breakers. Because for each of them to be usable, they had to break big rules uh, that were their norm, each in their positions of life. Cornelius, Cornelius was a willing Roman centurion. If you read the be- right at the beginning, he was, a, he was a centurion. Centurion was of a hundred soldiers, and he was based in Caesarea, which was the headquarters of the occupation. So I, I want us to think about what an occupation is, right? Those, we, we in Kenya have experienced um, colonial powers being with us, and there was a headquarters of, of the colonial powers, and, 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 and uh, they will usually have some military base to make sure that whenever people rise, they are put under control. Well, think of a centurion who is over 100 men. Probably uh, there was a whole legion in, in, in a place that would have been the center of, uh, of, of, uh, of the occupation. And a legion would have had 6,000 men upward off. So he's not the top commander. He's only in charge of about 100 people. So there are at least maybe 60, 60 people of his rank. So this man, Cornelius, was not lonely. It's not because he was lonely that he was now seeking after the gods or the god of the people who were captive to the Roman Empire. And yet somehow he was attracted to that God. He wasn't a proselyte. There's nothing that indicates he was. In fact, it's clear that he wasn't. A proselyte would have been practicing uh, the, 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 all the rituals of the Jews. But he was following the way. He was probably watching what the Jews were doing and he was doing the same. He was praying at 3 p.m., the Bible says. And that is the hour of prayer. Remember when Peter and James were going to the temple and they found the beggar? They were going for the three o'clock prayer. That was a Jewish practice. It also says that he led his family, his whole home in to live worshipfully before the Lord. So he had not only believed and was searching for this God and clearly he didn't have the full picture 
But he had also told his, called his family along uh, to believe with him. But beyond that, he was also a man of action. He knew that this God required people to give. And he was a generous man, giving to the poor. I think all that is subversion. So let's, let's put this into some context that might be familiar to us. Think of Iraq. We talked about Iraq, right? And you think of uh, somebody of not too high a rank, a captain in the U.S. Army. And he's in Iraq. And he starts desiring the God of the people of Iraq. So he starts desiring to be a Muslim. This is literally what's happening here. What would his buddies say? What would you say when you read uh, Captain John Michael has changed to Ali Ashraif or whoever? That is subversion. What did he have to give up to follow in this way? Why was he following this God? I believe that he somehow had been watching these people and what he was seeing was connecting with a deep craving that is in each one of us. That, that, that craving that Blaise Pascal, Pascal uh, wrote about and, and everybody else interpreted into the hole in the heart, the void in our heart that can only be filled by God. And perhaps he was seeing some connection with what he was seeing and what he was feeling, a desire for God. He was a God-seeking man. But he was not a Christian. You know, it makes me think about us when we go for missions. And, and you know, missions has changed now. So that perhaps people don't say, oh, I'm going to um, take the gospel to people. Maybe people don't say that anymore. But dare we never say that because God is already at, uh, in action. He's always already at work wherever he sends us to be. Cornelius was ready. Was ready. He, was, he was ready to become a Christian. Had Peter refused to go, Cornelius would still have become a Christian. I believe with all my heart. Let's look at the other, um, the other rule breaker, Peter. Right? Now, Peter was reluctant. The angel or the voice had to speak to him not once, not twice, but three times. And he was still puzzling over it. He's still sitting there. You know, as I read about this, this passage, I think the man who was transformed even more than the other, Cornelius was already on that path. The man who was going in this direction and God turned him around, that was Peter. So this non-Christian is the man who really God used to transform the Pope. This is the Pope. This is the, the man that, that, that Paul later calls the, the, the super apostle. This is the man that Jesus had, had, had called the rock. And it took a non-Christian to transform him, to, to um, show him that God was now calling the church to the ends of the earth. I want to propose that God crafted the welcoming of Gentiles. That is what this passage is about. The welcoming of Gentiles, the going to the ends of the earth. But he crafted it on the fabric of hospitality. He crafted it on the fabric of hospitality. And this is the story of people welcoming one another into their homes. So Peter receives the men from Cornelius 
from Cornelius and he welcomes them into his friend's house and they stay the night. And then notice what he does. He calls his friends and he says, let's go with you. Peter must have been, yeah, he was a man of position. God needed a man of position to be able to be convincing so many people uh, to go with him 30 miles north to Caesarea, which people could not have, Caesarea, which people could not have loved very much. This is the seat of power. And when they get there, they're welcomed with great fanfare. It says that Cornelius had called his relatives and his friends and they were waiting for him. And when he came in, he's, he's a Roman. I don't know how, what, the, what the culture of the Romans was at that particular time when you're receiving an esteemed guest, one of his captives, right? But he falls at his feet. And it may sound a little strange, but we know in the Jewish tradition, when you received guests, you washed their feet. So he really honors this friend who has come in. And, and, and when Peter goes inside, he finds all of, Peter's friend, of Cornelius' friends are waiting with him. Hospitality is apparent throughout the book of Acts. People meeting in homes, sharing food, sharing their relationships with one another, introducing one another, sharing everything that they had. And indeed, in, throughout the, the scriptures, this is one currency that God uses a lot. Hospitality. The widow at Zarephath. Abraham receiving the angels. It's a lot of hospitality. I believe uh, that this is how God wants us. He wants us to use hospitality as a big tool as we reach out to our friends and our neighbors. Jesus sending his disciples in Luke uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 2 to 5, um, it reads, and if you can get the verse up there, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, take nothing on the journey. He presumes on hospitality. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you shall enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So, Missio Day assumes hospitality. Not only the act of receiving, but the act of submitting ourselves, giving, giving up power. When Peter goes into Cornelius' house, he, he, he's, he's, he's giving up power. He's giving himself up. He didn't come in with a bag of goodies in case he was not fed. He's at the mercy of those who are receiving him, which is what Jesus um, has commanded here. And there is mutuality to it. It is not one way, it is a two way. Be ready to receive, be ready to go. My family had no idea what the Northwoods was going to be like when we came in three and a half years ago. Well, I've got to tell you that we have been so pleasantly received in this community. Our boys thrive because they are welcomed by their buddies in school and they have found a place We've been received to many homes. There's generosity beyond words. As we furnished our home and as we have uh, had one need or the other. And, and moreover, and this is what gives us most joy, people have come into our home and we have uh, dared them to eat tongue and liver and, and, and fun stuff like that. And they have tried it. And ugali and chapatis and stuff like that. That is a joy. And here's the secret, guys. I'm going to release, reveal to you all. You do not need to be invited 
we will usually have more than enough food at our table. And coming to us during a mealtime, that is not an interruption. That is our super joy. We love it. We love it up here. Dr. Christine uh, Paul, I'm going to misspell, mispronounce her name, uh, who is a, an assistant provost at Osbury Theological Seminary, has written a book called Making Room, Recovering Hospitality as a Christian Tradition. And what she basically did is she studied hospitality as it is presented in the, in the scriptures and in the church through the different ages. And then she looked at several institutions and churches that are known, that met a certain criterion for being hospitable places. And uh, so that, this is what this book is about, an excellent read. Uh, if anybody calls themselves my student, they know that they have to read this book. And he, she describes what she fi- in her findings what she sees as today's perspective of hospitality in, for most of us. It, it's greatly shaped by the hospitality industry. It is, it is an entertainment business. Hospitality is. It's about what I can get from you. And often, even in many churches, it is in the public sphere, but doesn't always extend to the homes. In our homes, we are happy to receive uh, those people who are like us, our relatives, people that we trust, people that we know, people that we feel safe with. And that is not to say that that's what everybody does, but that's how she describes her findings on the contemporary understanding of hospitality. But here are some things that she found of those organizations that intentionally have chosen to go into radical um, ministry of hospitality. She says that there's there's an intersection of the public spaces and private homes. You receive people in the public sphere, and then you take them into the home. And you see that, in, in the, especially in the Old Testament. We see Lot receiving the strangers at the gate and taking them to his house. She also sees the element of risk. Lot did that at high risk. Soon, the people out in the square were baying for, their, for, their, for the guests. And there's loss of control. Loss of control. Now, I, I heard a talk of hospitality on the radio once, and, and, and uh, the speaker was saying, oh, hospitality is good because when I welcome people to my house, they can leave when I want them to leave. I'm in control. But that's not the biblical hospitality. I don't think Abraham was in, was in control when he was, was telling his wife, please go, go get me the best calf you have. You don't see many places in scripture. Even in this uh, account of Cornelius, the guest seems to be the one who is esteemed and, and, and has uh, quite a bit of control. And then the guest is held in high esteem. This is Cornelius falling at the feet of, of Peter. And then here is the super important ingredient, food. Food is shared. And here is what food does. There is the soup kitchen where you are giving people food and there is a very, um, you know, and I am nothing against food, food kitchens, but it, it, it's a sense that I'm giving you, right? When you welcome people to your table, we are eating together. We are equals. We hunger, the, we hunger to, uh, the, in the same way. 
we suffer hunger, we, 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 we have the same need for nutrition and we are eating together. And especially when you are welcoming a stranger who is in need, that gives dignity. So when you welcome somebody, and this is very much our culture, as they eat, you sit and eat with them. Because that is in the ministry of hospitality, you make on, on giving dignity uh, to the guest. The high cost of hospitality in these churches and organizations has meant that they choose to live in simplicity. Now this goes against the grain of our homes because we want to look our best. And so we, 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 we smarten everything, we, we make sure that we, we look our best. But if we are super hospitable people, there is no time for that. In fact, you have to live in simplicity because you're giving so much uh, to those who are in need and who come and share in you. And then she says this, there is mutual blessing in hospitality. Not only is the guest blessed, but the host reports that they experience super blessings. Hospitality has Jesus in it. It is a, a sacred practice. In Matthew 25, uh, 35 to 36, we read Jesus saying, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Whenever biblical hospitality is present, Jesus is in it. And it goes on to say, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of this, this is when you're inviting people from the margins. You did for me. But then it also says the opposite. In verse 45, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did not do for me. So very, very quickly, as a good African, I will run over a little bit. I'm warning you, <laughs> all right? Because this is super important. What are those barriers that stop us from being hospitable? And, and I pulled some, some principles just from these scriptures, um, sort of principles of what these people did not do. <laughs> Right? Um, in order to, so, that, so that they were able to be hospita hospitable. And one of the big barriers of hospitality is exceptionalism. Exceptionalism. Exceptionalism is the perception of being different, often superior to, uh, to the norm, what we consider the norm. Exceptionalism is very much an us versus them. Those are the guests, we are we. In our story, it seems to be that Peter may have been uh, the one who needed to be more changed in order to receive the Gentiles. God had to shake him up. Exceptionalism goes against God's clear plan for diversity. And, and this country is right now at the cusp of considering these things uh, in, a, in a very serious manner. Diversity is God's plan. Acts chapter 17 uh, reads, this is, um, and, and I won't even give context to it, but this is Paul uh, writing and he says, From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of the lands. God did this so that they could seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God intended, God intended for diversity to be. And then later on, um, in Revelation, we find that God wants us to celebrate in 
diverse nations, people from every nation, tribe, and, 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 and uh, color, and language. Now, this diversity seems to have begun in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 11. Right? And I call the Genesis 11 sort of the antithesis of, of, of diversity. The people were all speaking as one. People wanted to be the same. And what happened to them? They became very ambitious. And they wanted to build a building that would go up to the heavens. And when you read about the context of um, the Tower of Babel, if you build something going up to the heavens, what you are doing is you are challenging God. You are totally challenging God. And that's why God comes down and disperses them. And we think that it's, you know, it's easy to think that that was a curse. But really, it seems like what scriptures say is that diversity is what opens our eyes and our ears to see God better. Today, exceptionalism is promoted openly. Nations and tribes and races. And I come from a Kikuyu people in Kenya who are the majority people and who have ruled, have had the presidency for three out of four uh, terms. Um, one term being about 24 years. And, and I say as a Kikuyu that, some, that the Kikuyu uh, feel that this means that we are very special. The problem with that is all the other people feel like they're in the mar- margins. And every year when there's an election in Kenya, the move against the Kikuyu who feel exceptional is so serious that, I, that every election year is an existential threat to our country. This is one of those years. Ten years ago, we almost had a civil war and thousands of people were killed and hundreds of thousands of people were displaced because of some people feeling exceptional and refusing to receive others and and basically showing um, off to the others. Exceptionalism leads to strife and division. And it comes in the way of uh, the gospel. The second um, barrier that I wanted to talk very briefly about is fear. Fear of the other. And Peter, Peter shows that he really wasn't healed of the fear and later on in the scriptures. Uh, it says in Galatians, Peter, uh, Paul was confronting him because having started off by receiving Gentiles, now he's not. And, and, and it says in verses 11 to 14, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face for he said what what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But later, when some friends uh, of James came, Peter couldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. So he was now fearing what people would tell him. Verse, chapter 11 of Acts, he's defending his actions uh, for eating with the, with the Gentiles. And sometime later, um, the fear has come back. And, and, and he, he, he is afraid of what his friends will think. Fear dwells in the margins. You're afraid and you want to keep the boundaries of, of who is coming into your space. The opposite of fear is love, as we read in First John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. I propose um, that if we can love the people we fear, which is a difficult thing to do, then it is much easier to receive them. The third thing I want to very briefly talk about is entitlement. And Peter was an entitled, actually both Peter and Cornelius would have been entitled. One, as the, um, as, as the overseer of, of, of the colony, and the other as an apostle. Defending privilege to the extent of resisting God. 
appears over and over again in scriptures. God does things that are pervasive, that are different from what we'd expect, and we feel like he should have done differently. You know, Peter was in the middle of preaching when God gave the Holy Spirit. I know for some people the debate is, okay, first you have to be baptized, and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit, right? Well, in this case, God was like, I don't care what you think. The Holy Spirit upon these Gentiles. I think of other people who are resisting what God was doing, and it was because of um, entitlement. I think of the story of Jonah, real quick. Jonah is sent to Nineveh, and, 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 and he gets upset that God actually wants to save the Ninevites. Now, these are the Assyrians. These are the people who, had, who were so horrible. Whenever uh, the Assyrians captured a city, they just tore it apart. Terrible, terrible acts of genocide and, and just demeaning activity. And now God wanted to save them. And, and, and the book of Jonah is about him saying, God, you can't save these guys. He tries to run away. And, and when uh, God saves them, he is angry. Entitlement. I know right now that America is asking hard questions and as the people of God I invite us to think about how hospitable we are to the other. And I will not go into much detail on what that would mean for us. Maybe we can discuss them some during uh, cross training. But let me end with Hebrews 13 1 to 3. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by doing so some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prisons, those in the margins, as if you are together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated, as if you yourself were suffering. And a blessing now may God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip to you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing in him through Jesus Christ, to whom we glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.